Good morning. Welcome, and welcome back, campers. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Leah, does anybody else want to share before I get into it? Anybody else? You guys were all jumping, uh, itching for the opportunity to share. Uh, but no, thank you. You have been prayed for. Your family has been prayed for if your camper went to camp. Uh, and we will continue to pray for them. Uh, many lives are changed uh, at church camps. My life was changed uh, at a camp, and uh, I'm sure many, many others. And so it is a worthy endeavor, uh, definitely one that the Lord uses to bear much fruit. And we'll pray he continues to bear fruit. Uh, I also want to encourage you, look around. Just look around, look around, look around at the different people and who are here and, and different people who are not. Uh, this is the summertime. It's a busy season. Many are traveling. Some are on vacation. Some are, uh, some are also, and I'm glad to report, uh, helping another church. Uh, we have been uh, reached out to by a church in Paia, Paipala Church. Uh, they have been without a pastor for some time, and uh, they have reached out to us for uh, help in terms of uh, pulpit supply, in terms of leading music and things like that. And so uh, it is just a blessing, one, that the Lord is working here such that uh, we have uh, uh, the ability to go and help other churches move towards health and, and things as well. And I think this is just really the tip of what the Lord wants to do here in and through our church and will do uh, as we work on following him. And uh, so Raymond and Lindsay, if you guys know, uh, you guys remember Raymond and Lindsay, she plays the ook. He's, uh, he's the only person who ever drums and smiles uh, while he drums, and he's just fantastic. Um, they're over there leading worship with Creedy this morning. So uh, we'll pray for them, uh, pray for them as well and their ministry and our ongoing ministry. Jim will be preaching there in a few weeks. Uh, Pastor Jim will also be preaching in Maui Philippine Baptist tonight, filling in for Pastor Bong. So those who desire uh, to come this evening and encourage him and encourage the body there, uh, they meet here. What time? 6 p.m. So 6 p.m., check it out. Uh, but yeah, so we'll be doing this as a church partnering with Paipala and other churches in time to, to help until they get a pastor there, and we will praise God for them. So uh, that's what we do. We are one body in Christ, and it is a blessing to be able to do. So thank you. We return to John 16 after taking two weeks break. I was sick last week. Uh, actually, my whole family was sick except for my wife. Uh, and now my wonderful, lovely wife is sick this week. So uh, she is not here, but my two little ones are running around, uh, and her and the baby Haddon are at home. But thank you for your prayers and your love. Uh, thank you, Pastor Jim, for preaching an excellent sermon last week. And uh, yeah, thank you all for your prayers. We feel them. We feel the love. But we're jumping back into John 16. Now, uh, if you remember, this is the, the farewell discourse of Jesus. And so maybe you don't remember. Maybe it's your first time joining us. You're a visitor. Uh, we've been working through the gospel according to John. And John has two parts to it, two main parts to the book. Uh, there is the first half, which is the book of, does anybody remember? Signs, that's right. Thank you. You just bring joy to my pastoral heart, whoever said that. Thank you, right? Uh, and, and then the, the second half is called the book of? Glory. That's right. The book of glory. The book of signs is the first half. The book of glory. John structures his narrative about Jesus around these seven signs that we walk through. Uh, and, and then there's this book of glory, all pointing us to who is Jesus. Jesus is the unique only begotten Son of God, uh, declaring the glory of the Father through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so John has been working with us. We, we've seen the I Am statements uh, throughout the book of John, all pointing to who 
is Jesus. Now in this second half, John 13 through 16, Jesus has ended his public ministry, at least in John's gospel. His public ministry is over. The Jews, his national people, have rejected him. And so his final words to them were in chapter 12, 11 and 12. And now he has pivoted the remainder of his gospel, and he is talking to his 11 disciples before he is arrested. So this is his intimate conversation to these 11 guys. Judas has already left, and now this is important stuff because he's telling them kind of his, his last words, if you will, his, his last instructions before he dies, and we know he's going to rise again. We know the end of the story. They don't. And even when he does rise again, time will be very short for him, and so they will never have Jesus like this again. And now we're jumping into chapter 16. This is the last chapter of the farewell discourse. Chapter 17 will just blow your mind. Uh, I I won't be able to do it justice. I'll just tell you that. You should just read it. Uh, It is the prayer, an intimate prayer between Jesus and Father. We have nothing else like it in the New Testament. It is the prayer life of Jesus that you get just a little window into. And so you want to supercharge prayer life, it would be in your best interest to study the prayer of Jesus to his Father. Uh, And you will find many ways that your prayer life can be transformed as well. Uh, So we'll be here next week. And forgive the the going in and out here. Um, So we remember John 15. Jesus told his disciples to abide in me. I am the true vine. The true vine. Uh, Israel, the nation, was likened to a vine that produced bad fruit. God wanted good fruit from his nation. Jesus comes in and says, yeah, that's me. I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine. And he says, abide in me. Abide in my love. Abide in my word. And you will bear bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And there's a lot in that section, the first half of 15, about the disciples and your, by extension, relationship to Jesus. The last half of chapter 15 through the beginning of chapter 16 is the disciples' relationship to the world. The disciples' relationship to the world. And here's a spoiler alert, because we didn't cover that last week. It won't be good. It is not a good relationship. Uh, That's essentially what he says. They will hate you. Uh, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they're going to also persecute you. They don't love the Father. They're going to hate you. The day is coming, he says in the first part of chapter 16. The day is coming when whoever persecutes you and kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now that was true in their day. It's no different in our day. The Islamic State Many radical Muslims, many other branches of people will kill Christians thinking they are offering service to God. Even the persecution of the world. Most recently, Senator Bernie Sanders himself. Anybody in here who felt the burn for that person to become president nomination and you desired to become president, presidential nominee? As of this week, even said Orthodox Christianity uh, of a gentleman on the, for the finance committee of the nation He said in his confession to the Orthodox Christian faith, to the exclusivity of the gospel, Bernie Sanders summarized why he will not vote for him is because that is not the type of person that this country is about, which is extension, all of us, by the way. 
saying this is not, Christians are not the type of people this country is about. That is an orthodox, biblical confession of the faith. And I praise God that man is not in office this morning, presidential office. But the persecution of the world, you can expect more and more of this. And Jesus says, I've told you this beforehand so that when it happens, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. When their hour has come, and when their hour has come, no, it is only an hour on schedule of the Father's ultimate plan and purpose that will prevail. So that's the the chapter 16 up through verse 4, and that's where we will jump in this morning. Now, throughout this whole discussion since chapter 13, right, this is uh, something we've seen that's very peculiar and unexpected. This is your, pretend you're Jesus. We know you have to pretend that, because I know you're not. Pretend you're Jesus. Pretend you're talking. This is your final hours with your 11. What are you going to tell them? What are you going to teach them? It's the last opportunity, formal opportunity before everything starts to go down. What are you going to say? Jesus says something very peculiar here throughout this whole time. Have you noticed it yet? We've seen it. What Jesus gives them is a lesson, an extended discourse in theology proper on the nature of the Trinity and the application of it to their lives over and over and over again. You see him talking, Father, Son, Spirit, Father, Son, Spirit. Have you ever considered, beloved, how deep and applicable the doctrine of the Trinity is to your life? You realize that the, the structure, the nature of the intertrinitarian relationships, Father, Son, Spirit, is the very pattern for our marriage relationships. It is the very pattern and structure of the church. It is the very pattern and structure of any relationship. It, it is the foundation, and now here he is just making it practical in the barest terms for his people. That is amazing. He is giving them a lesson in theology proper. That is not what I would expect, but apparently we many times miss the importance of these doctrines. They have been fought and labored over and preserved for us for a reason, a very important reason, and Jesus expounds on that before us. So this sermon will not be uh, a sermon on the Trinity alone per se, but it's just worth noting as you think and read these texts uh, its importance. It's important. Uh, and now in our passage before us, we had the disciples' relationship with Jesus, with the world, and now he's going to turn them to his relation, their relationship to the Father through the Spirit, by the Son, or in the Son. So let's pray, and we'll get rolling. Father in heaven, we ask your blessings upon our time this morning. Uh, may you feed your people. May you divinely take your words, my weakness, and encourage your people with your Son, with the glory of Christ. And I pray that we would hear these things, that we would be doers uh, of your word and not hearers only. I also lift up uh, our brother and sister, Raymond, Lindsay, Kelly, and others who will be serving in Pipala, uh, who are serving this, this moment. Would you build and encourage the flock there? Would they be abiding in Christ? And that you would bless them, we ask, with a faithful pastor who will feed them and tend to them well. 
And Lord, we lift up uh, Pastor Jim as he preaches this evening. May you encourage the, the body at Maui Philippine Baptist Church. Would you save souls today all across Maui so that a great name, that the majesty, the wonder of Christ would be propounded in this community, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Four points. Number one. Number one. Four points. Uh, your advantage. Your advantage. Point number one is your advantage. Verses five through seven. Jesus says this as I click there with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you, none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. We're just going to stop right there. He, he starts this off and says something very familiar, uh, very interesting here. He says, none of you asked me, where are you going? Now, if you've been here with me since chapter 13, you know actually two of them have asked Jesus that. Peter asked Jesus that, and Thomas both asked Jesus that exact question. So how can Jesus say, none of you have asked me this? Uh, I think what he means is that none of them have asked him the question in the sense that they've only focused on what his departure, what it means for them, what it means for their loss. But not one of them has asked them what it means for his gain and for theirs. They're just focusing on the loss of it, the fact that uh, we've been following you for three years. What is this going to mean for me? But they haven't really truly pondered the reality, the nature of what does this mean for, for you, Jesus? What is the ultimate meaning of your departure? See, they have been fairly focused on themselves instead of focused on who? On Christ. But it actually, it was confusing because it sounded Christ-focused. It sounded uh, that all of their sadness was the result of his departure. And that sounds very, very Christ-centered. I mean, we're going to miss you. But it was mostly with a focus on what it meant for them. And as such, Jesus says, sorrow has filled your hearts. Sorrow has filled your hearts. See, if they had asked Jesus what it meant for him, you have to remember, he's been teaching them this whole time that, that the, he is the son, the only begotten son, full of grace and truth, who has been eternally in the bosom of the Father. He has been telling him over and over, I am, I am, I am this, I am this. Me and the Father are one. And as long as I am here in my humility, as long as I am here, I am not with him in the fullness as I desire to be. My mission is not accomplished. But see, if they had thought in that terms, well, if he's leaving, it must be the fulfillment of his mission and purposes coming to pass. And this is not bad news. This is what? Good news. This is really good news. But they were focused not on the bigger purposes of God, but on their own immediate loss. See, trials have an effect of giving us a type of spiritual tunnel vision, don't they? When something jarring or emotional happens to us, it, it has the uh, impact of, instead of seeing this big uh, picture of what God's doing and what he's done and what he will do, it kind of narrows us in to the immediate pain of the situation. We lose focus. 
here's some application for you right out of the gate. As long as you only focus on what you have lost or may lose, you will miss the bigger picture of what God is doing through Christ in your life to make his glory known. So as long as you only focus on what you have lost, what you might lose, the sorrow of it all, you are in danger of missing the bigger picture of what God is at work doing in and through Christ in your life for his glory. See, when your focus is bent inward, your heart will be, as he said, full of sorrow. He says, you are full of sorrow because of these things. You're like, where's he going now? And he's back. He says, your heart is full of sorrow. Now, when you focus on what you lose, what you don't have, what you won't have, or what you think you won't have, then you become like this cup. Scriptures describe us elsewhere, Romans 9, as vessels of mercy. Right? You're a vessel just bearing mercy meant to overflow and bring the good news of mercy to others. And as long as you're focusing on either what you've lost, that loss might be an intimate friend, a teacher, a pastor, like the disciples are losing in this context. That loss might be a family member, a spouse, a, a brother, a sister, a mom or dad. It might be a job or, or even, even more painful in some cases, a child. Or a marriage. And I don't mean to make light of any of these losses. But they can have the effect, the impact of, of leaving you feeling empty. Empty. You're meant to be full of something. But you can feel empty. Or if you feel nothing, I think sometimes sorrow can make you feel what? Empty, doesn't it? Because you focused on these things, and, and your, your heart is just, I just love that play, that, that word full. It is just full of sorrow. That's where they were. They're just, I don't even know what to do with my life right now. I'm just full of sorrow. And see, who's the main focus in all of the thoughts that they had? We are going to miss you. I, am, I don't know what I'm going to do without you. I don't know or, or all these things. Who, who's the main focus? I, me, I feel empty. How, how can I help others, Jesus, and feel this joy that you're promising and abide in you when, when I'm feeling empty myself? You see, the focus is not shifts. It shifts inward. As long as I'm focusing on my loss, my sorrow, instead of God's bigger purposes and plans, I will be full, full of sorrow. But, but when you focus on God, on God's perspective, on God's purposes, on God's promises, on His Word, and trust in Him and seek to be in alignment with Him and that, something happens. Something happens. When you're not even looking at, look at how empty I am, you're just looking at how great, great God is, all of a sudden your emptiness starts to what? Disappear, full. Instead of your heart was full of sorrow, now it's full of something else. Ooh, and check that out. What's it doing? It's overflowing. It's water. It'll dry. Some of you guys are like, oh, it's good. You start to overflow. 
And out of the fullness of focusing on God, out of the fullness of being satisfied with God, with who he is, with who Christ says he is, and trusting in his promises and in his purposes, then he says, and he'll end this out, ask that you may receive and that your joy may be full. There it is, that play rao again, that your joy, your heart was full of sorrow. But when you ask and you trust in the name of God and for the glory of Christ, you ask these things, then you are full. And out of that fullness, you overflow, beloved. And see, then we can realize and be in a position where we see his point that for me to go is to your advantage. It is to your advantage, which takes us to the next point, the second point, where we actually really flesh out uh, how is this to my advantage. Number two, because if I do not go... He says, if I do not go, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So now he says something startling. All right, for, for me to go away is actually to your advantage. Right? If you had thought about this, your heart wouldn't be full of sorrow. It's actually to your advantage. If I don't go, the helper will not come. But if I do go, the helper, the advocate, the comforter, the counselor, he will come. He will come to you. See, he says something. How can it truly be to my advantage if I go away? If he goes away. I don't, I don't get it, Jesus. Help me connect dots, right? You're here. Uh, I like having you here. Having you here has changed my life, literally. How is it then to my advantage for you to be not here? His answer is the helper, and that they wouldn't be sorrowful but joyful if they grasped this. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that? You lie. Do you believe that? If, if I could answer, if I came up and my sermon was, if, if you truly believe, I can have Jesus appear right here for you and that this would be better. Would you believe him? Wouldn't, isn't that what you would want more? Or in your trial when it's hurting and you feel those tears, would you not just like to have the Jesus just kind of appear out of nowhere uh, as he did in his resurrection appearances in the upper room and things? Would you not rather just have him there, put his arm around you and tell you it's going to be okay? Yes, I would like that. But yet he says, somehow it is better for him not to be here. Now, how can it be better? If I don't see how it's better, then I must be missing something about Jesus' statement. Or we may be missing something about the vital role of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of the believer. So either I'm missing something about what Jesus is saying and or I'm missing something about the role, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So how is it better to be gone? Well, we'll say it's better for Jesus to be gone because his presence is mediated by his Spirit to all of his people. It's better for him to be gone because his presence, the presence of Jesus, is mediated by his Spirit to all of his people. Think about that. When Jesus was here as a man, the incarnation, the Word became 
flesh, flesh. As a man, in his humanity, Jesus' presence was limited by his proximity. In his humanity, if you wanted to be near to Jesus, you had to be like Zacchaeus. And if you were we, like Zacchaeus, some of you are we in here. I've had it up to here with you, right? No, right? In his, in his humanity, if you wanted to see him, you'd have to climb up the sycamore tree, place yourself in the path of Jesus, and hope and pray you could get through the crowds or that he might see you. In his humanity, he was confined to one body, two feet, two hands. You had to go to the Middle East, to Jerusalem, or Nazareth, or Galilee, or wherever he was at, in order to have him near you. If you're not there, well, then you can't be near him, period. But now, now in the Spirit, his presence is unlimited in scope to all his people, such that he can say and close out Matthew with the great commission, Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now his presence in the Spirit is mediated to all his people for all time until he comes again in person and power and in glory. That means that this period of our existence between the already and not yet type times of Christ, the two returns of Christ, it means that this period of our life is not just a giant holding cell waiting for life to begin. Do you believe that? You ever look at it like that? Like, oh man, we kind of, we missed the first coming and now, now we're waiting for the second coming. But in between, this is just like a holding cell. This just sucks. No, not at all. Jesus came, I, he came and said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly now. Abundance now and later. Not either or, both and. Life now, more life later, into eternity in a jillion billion years, life then too, and for ages and ages, life and joy because of the abiding presence of the Spirit. One scholar uses analogy that is helpful. Think of the Library of Congress, the largest library in the world. Depending on which source you check, I think the Library of Congress and the British Library uh, go back and forth depending on the year of who has more books. But if you think of the Library of Congress, uh, if you've ever been to a massive library, I've never been to the Library of Congress, uh, but you would imagine just rows and rows of books. I mean, just books everywhere. Just, and if you're like a book lover like me, then you're just like, yes, let me just smell it. The Library of Congress, great. You can find anything. You can find anything about anything there. Any information you would ever want to know, there. You want to read something, a book you heard about, probably there. 150 million books or something like that. It's the Library of Congress. It's amazing. But then something was invented that now rules many of your lives. The Internet. Information superhighway. Once upon a time, if you wanted to know something, maybe you couldn't go to the Library of Congress, you'd have to look it up in a book and an encyclopedia or something like that. 
You have to go to the library and care enough to look it up. But now, if I want to know anything, I just got to Google, what's wrong with my child? Or the, the really dangerous one, what's wrong with me? Symptoms. I have cancer, right? Most advanced. I have brain tumor. That's what it is. It's the only thing, right? You know, you have a cold. The doctor says you have a cold. You'll be all right, Pastor. But now with the invention of the Internet, information is not confined to this super library of Congress or any other library. Now it is accessible to everybody at the tip of your fingers. So it is with Christ and the presence of the Spirit. No longer do you have to go to one locale, one place, one man. Now his presence is mediated by his Spirit to all his people, no matter which corner of the globe They are found even in the deepest, darkest cell or dungeon. He's there. He's there. That's his presence is mediated through his spirit to all his people. But his his power, his divine power, is mediated through his spirit in all of his people. Think about this. Genesis chapter 1. The spirit of God hovered upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God, God the Father, creating the Word, the mouthpiece, speaking the Word, the Logos of God, Jesus, and the Spirit of God, active agent in creation, forming molecules, atoms. Active in creation. It's the same Spirit of God. The same Spirit of God that came upon Moses to lead the nation of Israel. The same Spirit of God that came upon Joshua and the judges to do extraordinary feats. The same Spirit that empowered King Saul, King David in their respective roles as king. The same Spirit that Isaiah foretold would rest on the Messiah when he came and did rest on him at his baptism. And the sky opened and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. It's the same Spirit of God that Joel, the prophet, chapter 2 prophesied would be poured out on all of God's people in the last days. And it is the same Holy Spirit that Paul says in Romans 8, 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. His divine power is mediated by his Holy Spirit to all his people. Beloved, we may have unintentionally missed the vital role of the Spirit in the Christian life. It is said of the famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that he spent half of his time telling his people to learn doctrine. Half of his time telling his people to learn theology, learn doctrine. And he spent the other half of his time telling us people that doctrine is not enough. That doctrine is not enough. All your doctrine must lead you to abide in Christ and walk in the spirits. Or it is no better than the doctrine of the demons. This is so important. 
this Holy Spirit and his role in the life, the advocate, the comforter, the helper, the counselor. This is so important that Jesus told his disciples not to even think about trying to fulfill the Great Commission until they received power from on high. He said, wait in Jerusalem, Luke 24. Wait, wait until you have received the promised Spirit. Then go in power and make disciples of all nations. That's how important he is. He said, don't even go until he's come. And now he's here. Amen? Now he's here, at work, and all who believe. At work to do what? Well, sometimes certain branches of Christendom in a, maybe an overemphasis, or maybe, I don't want to say an overemphasis, but perhaps a, a wrong misapplication of this spirit. You might, you might think of the, the churches where there's like hooping and hollering and maybe dancing down the aisles or, or in the very, really most perverted sense of these things, you know, picking up and handling snakes and stuff like that, right? Uh, that's not what he has in mind here. The emotionalism, what has been known as the charismatic movement, that, that's not the case here. And I don't mean to hit on my charismatic brothers and sisters in a negative way. They've done much good, much good, by way of re-emphasis on the role of the Spirit in the Christian life. We should owe them a, a, a thanks, and they are our brothers and sisters. But there are over-excesses. That's not often the case that he has in mind here. The Spirit is meant to point his people, to guide them into all truth. Truth about what? About Christ. He'll guide them into all truth about Christ, all the words of Christ. He says, everything that is mine or that is the Father's, he will declare to you and he will glorify me, which is really to say the Spirit will drive you deeper and deeper into the glories of the gospel. It'll drive you deeper and deeper in love for Christ and for his body. Contextually, what will the Spirit drive them to do? It'll drive them, drive them to abide in Christ. To abide in me. We saw that in chapter 15, so we're going full circle. The Spirit will empower you to abide in Christ, which will empower you to abide in His love, which He then says, abide in my words, which then He says, you cannot love me if you do not obey my commandments. And so abiding equals loving. Loving equals obeying Christ. And so the Spirit of God will empower you to obey Christ by faith. It will empower you to love one another that new commandment he gives unto us. To love one another even as I have loved you. It'll take nothing short than a divine miracle of God, and I'm serious here, for you to love your brothers and sisters the way Christ calls you to. For you to love your wife like Christ loved the church. It will take a miraculous working of God for husbands to lay down their lives for their wives. It will take a miraculous working of God for wives to turn and submit their lives to their husbands and follow him as the church does Christ. And on and on and on we can go. It's nothing less than a miracle of God, the work of the Spirit, to love one another. What else? The Spirit is at work to empower his people to testify concerning Christ concerning Christ, testify to bear the gospel to uh, sometimes hostile audiences. 
and to be faithful until the end. And we could go on and on into the things the Spirit will do and must do for his people to be faithful to Christ. He goes on to speak more specifically about what the Spirit will do, verse 8 through 11. He says, And when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, it says also, along with this in context, the Spirit will convict the world of sin. What does it mean to convict? It means to expose the shame of, that, that sense of, of guilt that you feel when you do something wrong or when you think of a judge handing down a sentence. They've been convicted of whatever it is. You've been convicted of not loving God above all things, not living for his glory, that type of conviction. He will convict the world concerning sin in that he's going to expose the wrongness of sin, the badness of sin, the horrors of sin. Sin, And so when you come on a Sunday and you are feeling whatever I'm saying, and sometimes I get people to be like, Pastor, I feel like you were listening to a conversation in my house this week, all right? I, I wasn't doing that. It's, it's the Spirit of God bringing conviction of sin on your life. And whenever you speak to the world, the world will, will hear the truths of the gospel and they'll see the, the light of the glory of Christ. And because men love darkness, John 3 says, they turn from the light and don't come to the light because they, they don't want to be exposed. So some men, when the gospel is preached, and women, will flee. And still yet some, whom the Spirit is at work in, will not only be convicted, but they'll turn to the righteousness of God in Christ and come. He'll convict the world of righteousness. What does that mean? I have to think about that one for a while. He'll convict the world of righteousness because, what does he say? Because I go to the Father. I, I, don't, I don't get the because, Jesus. All right, So I had to think about this. Convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father. So what does that mean? It's hard for us to see when Jesus died on the cross, that was considered a very unrighteous death. It was reserved only for criminals of the, the worst sort, blasphemers. And that's exactly what he was convicted of, blasphemy, because he said, I am one with God. Blasphemy. So he was convicted for. And treason, because he claimed to be a king. And so they mocked him for both. It was a very unrighteous death. So if you were alive in that time, you would have seen this man, Jesus, this miracle worker, this prophet, nailed to a Roman cross, and you would have scoffed at any followers of him. But the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. Why? Because in his resurrection and in his return to the Father, the name of Christ was vindicated, not unrighteous, righteous. And everybody in him righteous forevermore. And that spirit now bears witness to his righteousness as the gospel is preached and it exposes the world's lack of righteousness as they turn from him. And of judgment. The cross was an act of judgment. 
It was an act of judgment on Satan, on principalities, on powers, and rulers, spiritual rulers. Satan has been judged, condemned, dethroned. Christ is ruling and reigning. It was an act of judgment. It was also an act of judgment on sin, my sin. Everybody who turns and trusts in Christ, it was an act of judgment, justice satisfied. It was also a foretelling of judgment to come. That justice, if you do not trust in Christ this morning, if you're not believing in him by faith, if you're not obeying, if you're not turning from your sin and trusting in Christ and fleeing to him for refuge, it's telling you that judgment is to come for all who are not in Christ. So I want to wrap up our time with this. He will guide you or convict you concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Are you here this morning and are you feeling conviction of sin in your life? I don't think I have to tease it out much more. You know the sin in your life, the sin in your heart, what's dishonoring to God. Do you feel the conviction of the Spirit? And I would ask if you do that you would come and find that justice has been satisfied in Christ if you will turn from your sin and trust in him. If you're here with a family member, if you're here with a friend, then I would ask nothing would give them more joy. Nothing would bring you closer to God. Nothing would give you more joy than if you would turn and trust in Jesus and follow him by faith. So, beloved, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have said all these things to you in verse 33, that in me you may have peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do ask that you would grant your people, maybe any in here who don't know Christ, that they would turn from their sin this morning, that you would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. I pray that you would drive them, not away, but that you would drive them to Christ in his finished work and receive the forgiveness of sins and the fullness of joy that you have promised. Would you grant that your people in here this, this morning, would you grant that we would, would see and realize anew the necessity, the role, the gift of the Holy Spirit of God and that we would walk in your presence and in your power. In Jesus' name, amen.